All my life, I have been impressed with the kind of people who could look like they were comfortable in their own skin. Um, people who were able to befriend everyone um, and not be concerned about those people being um, people of power or people who would make them look popular or acceptable socially. Um, those are the people I always looked up to. Um, but I still kind of feel like that. Um, and I also look at, around our community and I just watch the people who are comfortable with other people and comfortable um, just being kind to everyone around them. And I see all of you in this community in Highland doing that same thing. I watch all of you and I'm continually amazed when I find out things that are going on that I never knew were going on, that people are doing all these amazing things. Sometimes big things, and sometimes it's just the small everyday stuff that makes a difference in people's lives. Um, in John 13, Jesus says, let me give you a new command, love one another in the same way that I loved you, love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. When I think about this passage and I think about caring for others and doing big and small things, Karen Heflin always pops into my head. Karen always makes me feel loved and warm as soon as she sees me. Her eyes light up and she hugs me and she talks about how much she missed me, even if I saw her three days before. Um, so she's just one of those people in my life who I look to for guidance for how to treat others. But the longer I've known her, the more I find how she's not that way to me. She's that way to everyone. Um, I've watched her care for the immigrant community in Abilene, the refugees. I've watched her feed them and clothe them and help them walk their kids through school, um, take in their kids as if those kids belong to her. I've been to showers at her house for people who were struggling or getting ready to move to another city, but they're refugees and they needed help. Um, I've watched her with her huddle. All of those kids become her kids and she is invested in them, but she invests in all of us. And I think about that often and I look at her as a person who is confident in her own skin and yet in that confidence, it, it overflows to all of us. And I, t I think about this with my huddle kids. I want them all to somehow be so comfortable in their own skin that their love and their zeal for life pours out on everybody else. Um, I love this community and I love what it offers all of us, but I particularly love that we have so many people who do so many amazing things, including Karen and her amazing family. The reading of the word from Acts 1, 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. It is good to see you all today uh, here in this auditorium. And I want to remind you, maybe you took communion or maybe you've sipped uh, some coffee and you started to chin strap your mask. Go ahead and put that back up over your mouth and nose. Uh, we do that for one another uh, because who knows, right? Uh, and we want to keep this to be a place as safe as we can for one another. For all of you that are watching online, we're really glad that you're with us as well. And uh, as Ben said at the beginning of the service, yeah, we want to connect with you and find out where you're at and what you're doing and, and how to plug you in. We are looking forward to uh, very soon this year, a time when we're going to be able to, to be together. And uh, if you have been watching for the last two or three months or, or whatever, and, and Highland has become kind of your church home, uh, we're ready for you to plug in. So you can go to highlandchurch.org connect, and uh, we'll be able to reach out to you and, and get to know you a little better. We're in this series called Kind of a Big Deal, and we're going to talk about things for the next few weeks that are kind of a big deal, like your confidence in God. Last week, we, 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 we spoke about how we live our lives with the expectation that no matter what our circumstance, we're going to live into the question, what is God going to do with this? It doesn't matter if things are amazing or things are terrible. It doesn't matter if you're in the worst spot in your life. The question that we ask is, wow, I can't wait to see what God is going to do with this. It doesn't matter if you're in the best spot of your life. I was driving uh, down South 14th and I saw that big billboard that had the Mega Millions and the Powerball deal. And that was a huge number. And I spent like the next five blocks as I do whenever I pass that. I just kind of like do the math to calculate, okay, how much money is that really for me? Um, and it's always way less and that's disappointing. But like only $100 million, that's terrible. Give good grief. But then I, then I allow myself three blocks and maybe a stoplight to fantasize, okay, what, what would I do with that money if, if I want it? I'm not saying I play the Powerball. I just like the fantasy. It doesn't matter if, if you are in the hardest place in your life that you've ever been, or you just won the lottery, literally or metaphorically. The question that we ask because our confidence is, God, is in God is what, are we gonna, what is God going to do with this? Because your confidence is kind of a big deal. Well, today, as we heard from our community reflection and from Julie Danley, your job is kind of a big deal too. The fancy word for that is vocation. Your vocation, what you do day in and day out, is kind of a big deal. And I'm really excited to tell you why. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, for your goodness and mercy, your grace that is new every morning, we give you thanks. For the joy that it is to gather here, those saints that are here in this room, in couches, around Abilene, and around the world, Father, I give you praise for their faith. And I pray that this week you bless us 
with every spiritual blessing, everything that we need so that we can be empowered to do the work in your kingdom. Father, keep us ready to see the work of your spirit and to jump in with words, with love, with our own effort. So Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, Amen. So we, we looked at Acts chapter 1 this week, and, and next week we're going to go to a different text. But if you, if you want to understand what Acts is, here's, here's a broad overview, very quickly, just the point of it. And it's going to sound a little jarring to some of you because this is what you've heard most of your life. Acts is not a blueprint. Acts is our story. And I know, like, most of you think, well, no, that's, that's not what I learned growing up. I grew up in the Restoration Movement, and what we learned was that Acts is the blueprint of the church, and that what we have to do is mine this book for the instructions, the plans, the, the building codes of how we build our church. And that's what Acts is for. I don't think that's what Acts is for. A blueprint is a pretty ama- amazing thing. You can take a blueprint, and you can build anything, anywhere. McDonald's has this policy blueprint. It's like four inches thick. And if you take that policy blueprint anywhere in the world, if you follow those instructions carefully, you will have a McDonald's. It might be like one of those 1980 McDonald's with like the plastic seats and those little stone floor stuff. It it may have that cool playground with uh, Hamburglar, but it may not look like a normal McDonald's. But you can take that blueprint and you can put it anywhere in the world. That's what a blueprint does. But if you went to the Louvre, And you wander down that hallway of the beautiful architecture as amazing artists painted them throughout history. And you went up to one of those paintings and say, okay, I'm going to use this as a blueprint. It's going to fail. Acts isn't a blueprint for the church. Acts is our story. And it's really not so much our story as it is God's story. It's the story of the Holy Spirit because it's not a comprehensive account of everything that happened in the first generation of believers. And it really isn't a description of acts of the apostles at all. I mean, Peter and Paul are going to be like the heroes, uh, do most of the heavy lifting throughout the story. And, And Paul doesn't even count by Luke's standards as an apostle. But the one thing that we see, the ribbon that flows through the story of Acts is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the story of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. How the Spirit leads the church, guides the church. When there's a breakaway, something that the church can't get through, a problem, the Spirit just punches through it. And so when you read Acts, those are the themes you want to pay attention to. The geography. It's going to begin in Jerusalem. It's going to spread very quickly to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That's how the story spreads. You want to pay attention to witness. At the very beginning, those two angels appear and they say, you are our witnesses. You are the ones who have seen what has happened. Now go tell others. But most importantly, the power of the Spirit. One of the things that we do when we come together that's rather important, if you don't think so, is is to wait. That's what the apostles are told to do in Acts chapter 1, to wait. And in one sense, I'm talking about literal waiting, just, just standing in line. It's, it's what happens when we come together, and it, it feels like silence. And, and it's silence when, do you remember when those communion trays were passed? That would, 
I, I got to be honest with you, post-pandemic, I cannot imagine taking my hand, sticking into a tray that 50 other people have touched, and breaking off a piece of cracker that 50 other people have touched. Like, that just feels very odd to me right now. We did that all the time. Ugh. I'm not touching your fingers. Anyway, um, that's, just, that's just the pandemic. It just did it to me. I'll get out of it. I'm sure I'll be fine. But when we passed the trays, we waited. And we sat in silence. Or there was silence when, when somebody exited stage right or somebody come up, came up and they, they fumbled with their notes a little bit. There was just these, these pauses in the assembly. And some weeks, when my mind and my heart were ready, those pauses were holy. They were sacred moments where I experienced something important with God. There were other times when those, those pauses, when my mind and my heart weren't ready, they, they were torture. It was like somebody taking fingernails and running them down the chalkboard. There was this moment when the church I was growing up with, it was this weird like communion moment where somebody thought that somebody else was going to do it, uh, but they thought it wasn't their turn. There was just this miscommunication. And so it became communion time and nobody stood up to say the prayer, to do the little thought. And like that time just went on and, 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 and brother uh, Bill over here, he knew that he had brother, talked to brother Todd about doing the communion thought. Brother Todd just didn't get the message. He didn't pick it up. So brother Bill is getting real anxious over here. He's getting real anxious. Meanwhile, elder Steve in the back, he's really freaking out. This is not going well. This is going to be the disaster. We're going to hear stories about this forever. So brother Bill realizing that brother Todd hasn't figured out what's going on, stands up. Brother Steve is already halfway down the, the, the rows because he's just going to take over. He's just going to take care of it. It's, it's just, we're, we're going to mess this. And so Brother Bill sees Elder Steve coming. They look at one another, and they both assume at the exact same time, oh, they've got it. Brother Bill sits down. Brother Steve turns around and walks back to the end of the room. <laughs> Y'all, this went on for like four minutes. It felt like an hour before the worship leader just got up and said, we're going to pray. This is over. We're gonna... That silence did not feel holy because it was, it was anxious silence, but there are silences in your life. There are moments in your life where waiting is holy. And the reality is that we as a body have been waiting since those two angels appeared at the gawking disciples as they stared up into the clouds and the, the, the angels chide the humans for doing what humans do best being human, and then send them scurrying. For the work was waiting for them, and they returned to the upper room in Jerusalem where there was an empty chair. We are and we are not left behind. Jesus has risen into the clouds, but we're not left behind in the sense that we are abandoned because you turn that page in Acts, you go from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit just blows through, and we live in this partnership with God. Jesus didn't so much go up as he went beyond. I want to capture the true nature of that word, ascend. You can ascend a staircase. Jesus ascended the reality that we live in. Jesus became something more, and then sent the paraclete to be with us. The disciples are left staring into the clouds and the angels show up and say, hey, 
get to work. There is waiting that we do where we are still, and there is waiting that we do where we are so busy we are dead tired. The work we do matters. We're in that in-between stage. We're in that in-between stage of Jesus who has risen and then ascended and the Jesus that is going to come again and make everything right. And we live in between those two moments. And in that time, the work we do matters. And I'm talking about your job, but I'm also talking about way more than your job. Jesus didn't go up. He ascended. You don't just work. You have a vocation. And the reality is that most Americans spend more time at work than they spend anywhere else. Your job, whatever it is, whatever you do, is the greatest place of influence that our church has in the city of Abilene. Your job, whatever it is, whatever you do, whether you are a student in high school You work anywhere else. It is the greatest place that our church has any influence in the city of Abilene. And our work is different than the people around us. Your work is a sacrifice. It's holy and pleasing to God. It just, it feels like changing diapers at a daycare. But for, and for most of the world, that's how they see you. But how we see you is that you are expressing the nature and the quality of God and that you care for the most precious people around us. To the world, it looks like you just crunch numbers in an office or you manage a store. I have never appreciated food service workers as much as I have done in the last nine months. Their work is so much more than providing sustenance. Your work may just look like teaching students in a classroom. As Julie referenced with Karen. But it is so much more. If you ask an American who the person was who influenced them the most in their childhood, apart from their parents, more than half say teachers. The work you do day in and day out is God's best effort to change this city. And it feels like an unrelenting flood at a hospital or a clinic right now. But it is God's hand of healing. It is providing dignity and care, the presence of God. And even if that life is lost to this world, it is never lost to God. Your vocation changes the world. Because you and your day-to-day grind, getting up and going, this is how God carries the gospel to this city. You are God's witness. You're his ambassador. A few years ago, this terrible sci-fi movie came out. It was so bad that you absolutely had to love it. It was called Reign of Fire, and it had like really surprisingly amazing cast in it. And so I went and watched it, and sure enough, it was one of those terrible campy sci-fi movies, but it had dragons in it, and that was awesome. So I saw it like a half dozen times. And it, so it's this silly movie and fire-breathing dragons that have come awake in a modern era, and they ruin everyone's good time. But what captured me the most about this movie, and it's, it's what captures me the most at any kind of sci-fi or fantasy deal, is, 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 is the details. 
As, as you can imagine, with, with, with dragons flying in the air, fire suppression systems become much more important in your house. But what really provoked my imagination was this scene where they're teaching the children. They're raising children in the underground uh, subways in London because that's the only safe place where they can avoid all of the dragons buzzing overhead. And they teach them this mantra that said, when you're awake, you keep two eyes on the sky. And when you're asleep, you keep one eye on the sky. And I want to grab that and use that campy, terrible movie as a moment where the gospel might intersect our world. Because in the same way that those children kept one eye on the sky looking out for a dragon, we keep one of our eyes on the sky looking out for our Lord. With one eye on our work and one eye on our sky, we live in the in-between of Jesus' return. It was like when I went to, it was in, it was in uh, middle school and, and I was with the Boy Scouts and we went on this 11-day camp out into the wilderness and we got on canoes and we went across this large lake and we just lived out there on the other side of camp and we learned how to do all sorts of survival stuff. It was a lot of fun. But this year in particular was a year that my dad had wanted taken me to a, a golf clinic and so he was going to drive up to this mountain lake in the middle of nowhere and pick me up three days early. And so I got into the canoe with one of my leaders, and we, we, we went across the, the lake, and it's just he and I, and we're just kind of waiting there for my dad. And my dad said, I'll be there about 11. Well, 11.30 came by, and my dad wasn't there. And noon came by, and my dad wasn't there. But hey, I was a Boy Scout. We were the Boy Scouts. So I was prepared. I had already brought a lunch because I knew my dad was going to be late. He's late to everything. And so we're waiting there, and I just start to play around. And I'm sure the scout leader is bored out of his mind. There's no cell service. All he can do is just kind of wait. And he's getting a little itchy, and he's like, look, if your dad doesn't show up pretty soon, we're just going to have to take you back. I can't stay over here this long. We're just going to have to miss him. And I'm like, I know my dad's coming. Do not worry. My dad is going to be here. And sure enough, we, we had at the time this, like, old Audi. And I heard the whine of that Audi. And I knew my father was coming. I knew he was just around the bend with one eye on our work and one eye on the sky. We do the work of God. It's the story of the prodigal father. You know that story about the son, the wayward son that takes the money and, and, and leaves. And the father is waiting for his son to return. He is hopeful that his son will come back. He doesn't know what's happened in that foreign land. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's, he's hopeful that that's what his son is going to do. And if his son comes back and anyone else from that community sees his son first, they're going to shame him because he has ruined his father and they've brought shame to the whole town. And so the father keeps working, but he keeps one eye on that road for the hope that one day so that he could be the first to welcome his son home, to say that he is mine. God keeps one eye on the work and one eye on the road for those sons and daughters who are on the road home. It's the story of Abigail Grinnell, and you probably never heard that name before. Abigail Grinnell, uh, I found out about her from a book that Lisa Norling wrote called Captain Ahab Had a Wife, 
which is this kind of this fascinating story because if you read the story Moby Dick, um, you know, it's, it's all about ships and whaling and, and the, the white whale and, and kind of Captain Ahab's madness as he descends. There's two times in that story where Captain Ahab's wife is mentioned. The first time it's to kind of humanize Captain Ahab, to show him he's like a normal human being that has wife and a family and all of that stuff. The second time that they mention the wife in the story is when Captain Ahab is descending into ins- insanity. He's become so captivated by the whale, he's losing all sense of reality. And they talk about, they mention his wife as he loses his sense of humanity, of who he is. And the reality is, is during the Victorian era, um, a lot, the second biggest profession in America was, was fishing. It was, it was being out in boats. It was, it was doing that sort of thing. The number one was, was, was farming, but the second was uh, sailing. And sailing was almost exclusively a male profession. And you can see this reflected even in the architecture on the eastern seacoast, from Florida all the way up to like Nantucket. They built these things, they called them widow walks. It was this high porch on the top of the house. And the story goes is that's where a woman waiting for her husband to come back from sea would stand and just, they always faced east to look out on the ocean to see when those ships would be coming in, which is a beautiful story. But like most stories around American history, it kind of has a little more myth around it. An architect would tell you that that walk actually has a more common purpose, which is usually the chimney is built right there. And if you had a chimney fire, that's a real great place to put out the fire. And if you read the letters that women wrote to their sailing husbands, you realize they didn't spend a whole lot of time just standing up on the widow's walk, pining for their husbands to return. Thus, Abby Grinnell. In a letter that she wrote to her husband, our corn is very large and the barley is very good. We have thrashed in that corner lot and in that lot by the house. We got 60 bushels. Gideon's corn is not so large as yours. I guess there will be more weeds in the orchard than potatoes. I have bought me a new cow to fat and gave $11 for her. Your oxen have done very well this year and they are fat enough for beet. Uh, the carrot is as thick as weed down below Gideon's corn and we want you to come home to be a pull in it. I hope that you'll be so lucky that you will come next spring and as much sooner as you are a mind to. I don't get the sense that Abby Grinnell had a lot of time just to kind of stand up on that widow's walk waiting for her husband to come home. She was managing a farm with one eye on the work and one eye on the sea. She waited for what God can do. This is the story of the church. There is work for us to do. And so we engage our task keeping one eye on the field, one eye on the city, one eye on those moments when the Holy Spirit is going to invade your day and change somebody else's life for the better, and one eye on the sky as we await for our Lord to return. Will you please stand for our benediction? May the, God who, may the God who knows you, may the God who has prepared for you a purpose and a place this week, 
to be his ambassador, to be his witness, fill you with the Holy Spirit and give you peace. You may go in peace.